following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Just quick orientation with the uh, series that we're in at the moment. We're working our way through this book of the Bible called 2 Corinthians. And we've been in this book for most of the year. The last, I know that the last couple of messages that we've had in 2 Corinthians have been a little bit rough, been some hard passages that we've looked at. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at that passage on being unequally yoked. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yep, we enjoyed that one. And then last week, uh, we looked at sorrow and repentance. So that was just as fun, and it was a really, really cheerful message. I know that just picked you right up. And uh, this morning, I thought we'd just make it a hat trick, go for three, because this morning we come to a passage on money. Everyone's favorite topic to talk about in church, money. Uh, and in fact, I mean, we, I don't choose these texts, people. They choose me, I'm telling you. It's just the way it is when you're preaching through a book of the Bible. In fact, there's two chapters in 2 Corinthians that deal with the subject of, of generosity and money and so on. Uh, so we're going to be in this for uh, a couple of weeks, but we're in chapter 8 this morning. We're making good progress through 2 Corinthians, and we're going to read chapter 8. I'll read it to you, uh, first 15 verses, and then let's dive in and talk about this. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through you his poverty, so that, sorry, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. When you think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, we often picture him as a church planter, as a missionary, as a pioneer Christian missionary who traveled around the Mediterranean world in the first century planting various churches. And of course he did. That's who Paul was. That was very central to his calling. 
But he did something else as well. In addition to all of that, Paul wore another hat. He was a fundraiser. Especially in the latter years of his ministry, Paul had this role as a fundraiser. He was a fundraiser for the Jerusalem church. He had a particular connection to that church. It wasn't his home church. His home church was up in Antioch. But he felt a particular connection to the Jerusalem church. It was the mother church. It was where the the original church was, was born. It was the church where... The apostles Peter and James were based. It was the church that had sanctioned Paul's ministry. And it was a church where there were many, many poor people. There's a large degree of poverty in Jerusalem and a lot of poor in the Jerusalem church. And so Paul felt this particular connection to the Jerusalem church and this particular burden to support the poor among the church in Jerusalem. So what he would do as he traveled around his churches, as he planted churches and then visited churches and corresponded with his churches through letter writing, Every year, he would take up an appeal. He would take up an offering, and he would send it back, or he'd personally take it back to the church in Jerusalem. And he'd already done this at least once with the Corinthian church, because remember in this passage, he talks about that. He says, you know, last year, you were the first to give, and you were eager to do that. So he's already talked to them about that. And back in 1 Corinthians, he talks to them about the collection for the Jerusalem church, put aside some money for the collection. And now, next year's collection is rolled around. And it's time again to gather up these funds and to do a special offering and to have this collection for this church back in Jerusalem. And that's why Paul circles back to this topic now and spends quite a bit of time talking about that because he's going to visit Corinth or he's going to send a delegation to Corinth, collect up what's been given and take it back to the Jerusalem church. Now you might assume that the job of collecting money in Corinth would be a pretty easy one because Corinth's a pretty wealthy city. It was, there were a lot of people in this city. would have been a lot of people in the church with significant resources, significant finances, significant means. So you'd think that Paul's job here would be quite easy. But the fact that he takes two entire chapters to talk about this and go into the importance of generosity suggests that maybe his job was not quite as easy in Corinth to collect money for the offering as it was in other places. It may have been that the very values of Corinth themselves worked against generosity. Corinth was a wealthy city. It was the kind of city people came to to get rich, to make a profit, not to give money away, but to make money. It was a city where people valued lifestyle. They valued all the external trappings of success and the markers of status and wealth and recognition. It was a consumer culture. It was a materialistic culture. It was a culture very much like our own. Corinth, in many ways, ancient Corinth, was a city not unlike Auckland today. Some of the values are quite interchangeable. We live in a consumer culture, don't we? Some people call it a hyper-consumer culture, a hyper-consumptive culture. We live in a materialistic culture. We live in a money-obsessed culture where we are constantly trying to make more money, get the income level up so that we can get the next thing and the next thing and the next house, the bigger house, do the renovations on the house, get the house in the better area, get the next holiday, eat at the restaurants that our friends are eating at, get the, get the upgrade car, whatever it is, we've got to have the next thing so that we can achieve a lifestyle level that we feel we deserve and we feel like we are entitled to because advertisers and marketers are telling us all day that's exactly what we're entitled to. So we feel like we've got to have it. And that tends to be our life, just lifestyle choices to achieve a comfortable kind of existence. And what it looks like for us day to day is that we gear ourselves up and we're just just holding it together financially. We're just meeting the rent. We're just getting the mortgage payments done. We're just managing maybe to put a little bit of savings aside. We're just making things happen and work for our families. And then you introduce this idea of generosity. 
and it just sounds like we're talking a foreign language. I mean, for people that are just battling to make ends meet and meet the financial commitments they already have, you start talking about generosity, giving money away freely without expecting anything in return, without any kind of reciprocal, around, just, just being generous. It just sounds impossible. It just sounds completely unattainable. That's the kind of thing maybe Bill Gates, maybe Mark Zuckerberg, those guys can be generous, but not us. And yet this is the call of the gospel. This is the call of Scripture. And what Paul does here, his strategy is genius, because he knows this is going to be hard work to convince the Corinthians about this. So he tells them a story. He tells them the story of the Macedonians. And that's the story I want to look at with you this morning. The story of the Macedonians. And he tells them about that church. The Macedonia was an area north of Corinth, still in the country is, that is Greece today, but further north than Corinth. It was less well-off in a whole lot of ways, but that's the area where Philippi was, Church of Philippi. And you can read the book of Philippians, and you can see Paul's talking to them about how generous they had been. And they had contributed to this collection. And so now Paul uses the example of the Macedonian church where Philippi was as an example to encourage the Corinthians to be generous. And what he does is he doesn't just focus on the practice or the act of giving money away. He doesn't just focus on giving, but he focuses on the heart. And basically what he's saying is this. Generosity is like the tip of the iceberg. Being generous with your money is like the visible part of the iceberg that you see. But underneath that, for the Macedonians, was that mass of the iceberg, which was their generous hearts. And if we want to be generous people, we need to cultivate a generous heart. That's what Paul's going for. Not just the act of giving, but what it means to cultivate a generous heart. Because if we all go out there and we decide, I'm going to give some money away, I'm going to be a generous person, I'm going to do this, that's good, that's well-intentioned, but if you just decide to do it out of sheer willpower, it's going to be hard, it's going to be frustrating, you're going to get bitter, you're going to be resentful, it's not going to last. But if your giving comes out of a generous heart, It'll be as natural for you as breathing. It'll be as natural for you as walking. It'll be as natural as a fruit tree bearing fruit. So that's what we're after, is cultivating a generous heart, and that's what Paul describes. So I want to look at three qualities of a generous heart that Paul mentioned in this passage. Three qualities the Macedonians had, that mass underneath the surface. And then we'll look at what giving looks like, what generosity looks like above the surface. So three qualities of a generous heart. And the first is simply... Grace. Paul starts with grace. He says, and now, in verse 1, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Isn't it interesting that in a passage where Paul's talking about giving, he doesn't start by talking about what the Macedonians gave or what the Corinthians should give. He talks about what God has given. He talks about what God has already given to us and to these churches, which is the bounty of His grace. In fact, Paul starts with that, and then when he gets all the way to the end of this section on giving at the end of chapter 9, he comes back to grace, and he talks about the surpassing grace of God. He bookends this whole discussion of generosity with grace. Grace is the framework within which we should be talking about generosity because you can't even begin to be a truly generous person unless you appreciate the extravagance of what God has already given you. 
the incredible generosity of what God has already shown you. That's the starting point. And that's what grace is, the very word grace. It means gift. It means an undeserved gift, undeserved kindness, undeserved favor given to one who cannot earn it, cannot deserve it, cannot merit it, cannot be entitled to it, has no way of repaying it. It is given as sheer gift. That's grace. Now, what this grace looks like, Paul describes in verse 9. And this is fascinating. This is where he talks about Jesus. It's the only time in the passage where he talks about Jesus. But what he does is he describes what Jesus has done. But because he's talking about generosity and giving, he describes it in economic language. And you may not have heard this before. I mean, most of you have probably heard the idea Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But you may not have heard it in this language. Paul wraps this economic language around what Jesus has done. Listen to this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So what he's saying is Jesus had all the riches of heaven. He had riches we can't fathom. He had the glory and the opulence of his heavenly home, but he gave that up and he became poor. He took on our poverty. The sheer act of the incarnation was an act of poverty for Jesus. Just becoming human compared to his heavenly home, that was poverty. But then Jesus proceeded to live a life of relative poverty. He was a homeless man. He said at one point, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He had no income. He was completely, that is during his ministry years, he had no place to call home. He was completely dependent on the generosity of other people. And then he died in abject poverty. He died in financial poverty. He died in social poverty. He died in spiritual poverty because he was abandoned by the Father. And the reason he was abandoned by the Father is because he took on our spiritual poverty. You and I are utterly spiritually bankrupt. In fact, we owe a debt to God Spiritually speaking, we can never repay. It's, a, it's an incomprehensible debt, much like your mortgage. It's utterly huge. And that's where we stand before God, completely indebted to Him. But Christ has taken that debt. He's suffered the judgment of God. He's canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness before God so that we can then become rich not rich in a material sense. Our minds so quickly go there, don't they? But rich toward God, rich in a spiritual sense. Having the richness of knowing Christ, the richness of forgiveness, the richness of reconciliation with God, the richness of sharing in Christ's inheritance, the richness of having our lives immersed in the identity of Jesus. That's true spiritual riches, and we have that. So what Paul is saying is, to use this kind of socioeconomic language, Paul is saying that, that Jesus experienced the ultimate downward mobility. He gave up, gave up, gave up, gave up, gave up, so that we might experience ultimate upward mobility in a spiritual sense, that we might be lifted up, seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, and have the ultimate position of privilege, sharing in the Son's relationship with the Father. That's our place. That's grace. And that's the starting point for cultivating a generous heart. It might not seem immediately related to giving, but this is where it starts, is appreciating the grace of God. And as you soak your soul in that reality, and as you spend time just contemplating that, trying to get your arms around that gift that you have received, something starts to happen. Something starts to happen deep in your heart. Something begins to be awakened when you apprehend the grace of God. And that something is joy. 
Joy is the second quality of a generous heart that Paul mentions. He says in verse 2, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that a beautiful contrast? So Paul's saying their extreme poverty, the Macedonian churches were in real financial hardship. They were struggling, extreme poverty. And yet at the same time, they experienced extreme joy, overflowing joy, which tells you the joy cannot possibly have been based on their financial situation because their financial situation was a mess. It can't have been based on that. Their joy must have been grounded in something much deeper, and it was. What do you think it was grounded in? The grace of God, right? These, that's why these things are interconnected. Paul starts talking about grace in verse 1. By verse 2, he's talking about joy. Joy is the experience of God's grace. Grace is an objective fact. We receive the grace of God. But as we experience it and we enjoy it and we bask in it, we develop joy in our lives. And we need to distinguish here between joy and happiness. They're different things. We get them all mixed up in our lives, and we assume that being a joyful person is being a happy person, but they are quite different. C.S. Lewis was a great writer on joy. <clears throat> he wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, one of his most well-known books, and he says this, Joy must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. So what Lewis is saying is, is happiness and pleasure, they kind of exist on the surface level of our being. You know, we talked last week about our emotional well-being. Our emotional well-being is actually a fairly superficial thing, like the waves on top of the ocean. That's our emotions. They go up and down for all kinds of reasons. Happiness is tied to our emotional well-being. There's plenty of things that you can do that'll make you happy. I, I can guarantee you if I go and have Wendy's for lunch, if I go and have a big classic combo with cheese, I will be happy. Unless it's a really badly made one, I'll be happy. But what Wendy's cannot give, give me is joy, probably. What Wendy's cannot provide for me is joy, because joy is a much deeper thing. I mean, in one sense, you know the saying, uh, money can't buy happiness. That's probably not true. Because money can buy you happiness. But happiness is a superficial thing. Money can buy you all sorts of things that will make you happy. What money can't buy you is joy. Joy is much deeper. Joy comes not from the surface of the ocean, where the waves are, where the storm is. It comes from the seabed of your soul, where things are still and calm in relation to God. Joy comes when your soul is completely satisfied in Christ. Joy is the expression of a person who is completely fulfilled in their relationship with God, whose heart is at rest in Christ. Joy is the sensation of our soul. It's not the sensation of our emotions. It's the sensation of our soul, a soul that delights in God. It's that sense, and, and sometimes it comes and goes, but that sense that you are just deeply at rest, that you are held in the arms of God. That's where joy comes from. Sometimes it'll express itself in happiness, it's true that joyful people will be happy more of the time than non-joyful people. But it's also true that joy can express itself in a range of different emotions. It's not always happiness. Sometimes joy can exist in the midst of sadness. Sometimes joy can exist in the midst of grief. Sometimes joy can exist in awful circumstances like the Macedonians were going through. But even though their finances were a mess, they still had joy. 
And again, joy might not seem like it's got an obvious logical connection to generosity, but it does because God wants us to be cheerful givers, joyful givers. Overflowing joy leads to rich generosity. So grace and joy, and then the third quality of a generous heart is love. Paul says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Paul's saying it's not about commands, it's not about rules, it's not about legalism, it's not about obligation, it's about love. He's already talked to them about love. Back in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. He's described love to them, and now effectively what he does is he adds one more quality to the list, and he says love is generous. One of the marks of real love is that it's generous. But again, we have to see love as connected to grace and to joy. Grace leads to experience of joy. Joy leads to overflowing love, which expresses itself. One of the ways it expresses itself is through generosity. John Piper writes this in regard to love. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Paul did not set the Macedonians up as a model of love just because they sacrificed in order to meet the needs of others. What he stresses is how they loved doing this. It was the overflow of joy. They begged earnestly to give. They found their pleasure in channeling the grace of God through their poverty to the poverty in Jerusalem. It is simply astonishing. It was an expression of love that led the Macedonian church to give, and our generosity too needs to be motivated by love. So that's a generous heart, a heart that's anchored in the grace of God, a heart that experiences the joy that the Holy Spirit places in our lives, a heart that loves in the same way that Jesus loves, with that same self-giving, self-sacrificing kind of love that Jesus exhibited on the cross. Now, as we begin to cultivate those virtues in our lives, and this is a lifelong journey, I mean, no one's ever arrived at a point where they fully apprehend and experience the grace and the joy and the love of God. But as we grow in this, as we journey forward in grace and joy and love, we begin then to more naturally be able to practice generosity towards others, towards people in need, towards the local church that God's placed us in, towards other Christian missionaries, Christian organizations. We become more naturally generous people just in the course of everyday life. And so I want to look just briefly as we finish at what are the three marks of a generous life. We've looked at the mass of the iceberg underneath the surface, what, what cultivates this, and that's essential. But what does a generous life then look like? I want to come back to the example of the Macedonians and just point to three qualities they had which mark a truly generous life. Firstly, they were marked by sacrificial giving. Look at verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So the Macedonians were going through a severe trial. They were being persecuted for their faith. We read that in Philippians. And they experienced severe poverty. I mean, they were, they were doing it tough on a lot of different fronts. This was not easy times for them. And yet, even though times were tough, they still practiced generosity. They still gave sacrificially to the church in Jerusalem. That only comes from a generous heart. If you don't have a generous heart, then as soon as things get a little bit hard, generosity is the first thing to go. 
As soon as times get a little bit tough, you batten down the hatches, you focus on me, and, and generosity gets sacrificed. But if you have a generous heart, then generosity is the last thing to be sacrificed. The Macedonians were willing to give up a lot of other things before they were willing to give up being generous because they knew the grace and the love and the joy of God. Anna and I just recently finished going through pre-marriage counseling with a young couple. They got married a few weeks ago, and then after they got married, we met with them and did the final session in this series we'd gone through, which was on money. And as we talked about it, they shared how they'd made this decision, not something that we'd pushed them into, but they'd made this decision that they wanted to set aside a portion of their income to give to the local church that God had placed them in. It was a great decision. And they, for me, represent a Macedonian couple because they've decided, I mean, here's a young couple. They're just getting started in their married life. They're not making huge money. They don't have huge resources at this point. There's so many other things that they could give their money to to try and get ahead, try and make some headway. They're paying off a student loan, among other things. But they've decided as a rock-solid commitment in their lives that they want to set aside a portion of their income, their household income, to give to the local church where God's placed them. And as we talked to them about this, the young woman said, as they've made this decision and worked through all this, she has felt God just releasing her grip on her own finances. That's what's happening in her heart. You see how this shifts something in our heart? That God is just making her a little more open-handed towards her money, recognizing it's all from God anyway that it belongs to him. And she's just becoming more open-handed rather than tight-fisted because of that decision. That's a big decision, and that's a sacrificial decision that they have made, but they've decided this is going to come first or it's going to come before a lot of other priorities. That's what sacrificial giving means. It means giving even when things are not easy, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, continuing to be a generous person. But it's got to be motivated by a generous heart. There's got to be a generous heart underneath all of that. The second virtue that the Macedonians displayed was abundant giving. Verse 3, Paul says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. The Macedonians didn't just give what they could give, they gave even beyond their ability, beyond their capacity. I know we need to be a bit careful in talking about this, because if you are really burdened with financial debt, and really crippled by debt, your priority needs to be getting yourself into a more stable financial situation. And talking to an organization like CAP would be a great start. But there's a mindset shift here that I think Paul is getting at. There's a mindset shift when it comes to abundant giving. Because a lot of Christians, I think, when it, when it comes to giving, and particularly giving to the local church, a lot of Christians ask this question, how much do I have to give? How much do I have to give? I mean, is it, is it 10%? Is that still a thing? Is that still the rules? Is that, I know that's an Old Testament thing, but is it, a new, is it 10%? And if it's 10%, does it have to be gross? Could it be net? Can I go for net tithing on the 10%? Could I get it down to that? And, and then if, if, if that's okay, if I can do the net, is it possible, is it okay to split my tithe 17 ways? Because I also want to support all these other things, and I'd rather not do those over and, atop, over, over the, over and above my, my giving to the church. I, I want to just build it in so I don't have to give any more. And all of that is motivated by this question of how much do I have to give? It's a minimalist approach to giving, which basically says, you tell me where the bar is and I'll clear it. But I'm not going to clear it by much. I'm just going to get over it. But you tell me where the bar is and I'll clear it. And when you hear all of that talk, you know that underneath they're asking the wrong question. You know that underneath, 
there's probably not much of a generous heart there. Because if there was a generous heart, they would be asking a different question, which is, how much can I give? How much can I give? Does it have to be net? Can I possibly go gross? Can I put, do I have to just do 10? Could I stretch myself to 11? Can I put, look, they're looking for ways to give. They're willing. They're keen. That's, a, that's what a generous heart produces in us, is this abundance of asking, what can I give? Everything I have is from the Lord's hand. How can I be a, a vessel of generosity and blessing to other people? Abundant giving. But it's got to come from a generous heart. You try doing this without a generous heart, you're dead in the water. It's got to be fueled by grace, by joy, by overflowing love. That's what leads to these kinds of Macedonian choices. And finally, the Macedonians gave proactively. I love this. Look at verse, end of verse 3. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. You get the impression here that actually Paul had decided not to ask the Macedonians for money that year. He doesn't overtly say it, but you get the impression. The church, this region, was going through such a difficult time that Paul had actually decided, look, I've got these other churches that are giving. I'll leave the Macedonians out of it for this year. You, you guys are going through enough. You're having hard times. And you can just imagine a, a group from the Macedonian church coming to Paul and saying, Paul, you, you haven't passed around the offering bags yet. Paul, we, we, we're ready to give. What are you doing? And Paul's saying, well, you know, I, I just didn't think that you guys would be up for it this year. And I know how difficult it is for you. I know you're being persecuted. You're going through a hard time. And they're saying, Paul, what are you talking about? Please let us give. We are so ready to give. We are so willing to give. They urgently pleaded. That's the words Paul uses. He's literally saying they begged me to be able to give. Despite their poverty, despite their severe trial, they begged for the privilege of giving. I mean, imagine that. Imagine someone coming up to me at the end of the service. Look, could we just pass the offering bags around one more time? I think we've got more in us. We're so keen. We're so keen. This is the kind of spirit. I know that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but this is the kind of spirit of a generous heart. It's the Macedonian spirit that says, I, I want to be free with my generosity. And I want to give in spite of my circumstances. I want to give abundantly. I want to give proactively. It means not waiting till you get asked by someone to give, not waiting until there's some appeal or some compulsion or some need or someone says something, but just being alert and attentive and taking the initiative to be generous toward the church, to mission, to ministry, just in everyday life towards people that are coming across your path. Imagine if we were as proactive with our giving as we are with our spending. Imagine if you were as proactive about giving money away as you are about getting money. Man, we know how to be proactive about getting money. Any chance to make a little bit more. And we're alert to that. The radar is up. Imagine if we took that proactivity and we applied it to our generosity. And we sought out the same kinds of opportunities to give and to bless. You know what it will do? I mean, these qualities, they come from a generous heart. But at the same time, there's a, there's, a, there's a cyclical thing here where as we practice generosity and, and, and sacrificial giving, willing giving, proactive giving, abundant giving, these things will actually shift something deep in your heart as well. They will shift something. The worst thing you can do is sit around waiting to feel generous. You can be waiting for the rest of your life. You're not going to feel generous. Best thing you can do is take a step. And as you take that step towards being open-handed towards other people, you find something actually changes at a deep level. 
And God starts cultivating that generous heart within you. And then you become more aware of His grace, His generosity, how free God has been towards you. And as you cultivate that grace and joy and love, then that leads to more generous living. And then in turn, that shifts your heart. You become a more generous person. The whole thing spirals upwards. A generous heart leads to a generous life, and then a generous life leads to a generous heart. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever it is that we treasure, wherever our treasure is, that is where our heart will be. The most important thing in this whole discussion is your heart. And whether you truly are allowing God to cultivate in you a generous spirit, a generous heart below the surface, which expresses itself in a million ways above the surface. But where's your treasure? That's the most important question you can ask yourself this morning. Where's your treasure? Is it in heaven? Is it in the kingdom of heaven? In the things of God and the work that God is doing in the world? Or is it on earth? Is it in yourself and your stuff and the accumulation and the constant pursuit of a greater level of income and a greater level of financial security and that obsession with money? Is that where your treasure is? Because your answer to that question determines the condition of your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's inevitable. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So where's your treasure? Let's participate with God in cultivating a truly generous heart that we might be truly generous people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your very nature is to give. That God so loved the world that he gave. You're a giving God. You give your love so freely to us. God, where would we be if you'd been stingy towards us? Where would we be, God, if you had been tight-fisted towards us? But you have been so giving. You've been so free with your grace. You've been so generous. And God, what we're asking for this morning is a generous heart. What we're asking is that you would do a work in our heart. And God, look, for many of us, generosity is such a hard thing to cultivate in our life. It's a hard virtue. But Father, we pray that in our soul we would grow in our awareness of your generosity, that we'd experience true joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that we'd be filled with the love of God. And out of that, generosity would just bubble up. Help us to live in view of your great generosity and be generous towards others, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.